Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As you get settled in your seat, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you're going to find one under a seat nearby you. And so, um, and if you don't own a Bible or if you just want a new one, that is our gift to you. We want you to take that with us. One of my favorite things to hear from our setup team is, hey, Mark, we need to order more Bibles. That's my favorite thing to buy here. So please, we want you to take that with you. So several years ago, um, my wife and I, we won a trip to the Texas Motor Speedway to see the IndyCar race there as guests of Penske Racing. And so Penske paid for our, our flight out to Dallas. They play, paid for our hotel. And uh, most importantly, they provided us this which is an all-access pass to everything that's going on at the Texas Motor Speedway that weekend. So as we, as Beth and I arrived at the front gates of the Texas Motor Speedway, we had our lanyards on and we showed them this, and this pass says Penske Racing, and they said, yeah, go right on in. We're like, hey, that was cool. And as we made our way to the garages, we showed our pass, Penske Racing, like, oh, go right on in. And as we made our way to the pits, Penske Racing, go right on in. And most importantly, this pass gave us access to the Penske hospitality tent where I ate the best bacon of my life. I don't know why it's important, but I remember it. As, uh, as we finished off the weekend, we, wa- we got to watch the entire race from the pit of Elio Castroneves, who went on to win that race. And needless to say, it was a fun weekend for us because we're race fans. But I share that story because it's an example of the power of a name. You see, there's nothing special about Beth and I that would give us that kind of access that weekend. But because we were wearing a lanyard that was associated with Penske Racing, in that place, in that circumstance, Penske Racing had power. There was power in the name of Penske. Now, we all know this to be true. I mean, if you're, if you're applying for a job somewhere, it's always good to have a name, right? Somebody at that company that, that you know that hopefully is in a position of power, it's always good to share that name. Or if you want to try and get time with somebody who's difficult to find time with, it's always good to have a name. Hey, so-and-so recommended that I see you. So-and-so recommended I get time with you. Oh, okay. There's power in a name. But we as Christians know that there is one name that is above all other names, and that is the name of Jesus. Jesus. It's always a good answer in church. It's the name of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's the key thing today. There's power, the power in the name of Jesus. And we're going to see that so clearly on display today. So before we get into the text, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful to be in this place today to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would show us your glory today, Lord. And as we open your word, Father, prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord. Speak to us through your word. We know there is power in your word, Lord. Use me today, Lord, simply as an instrument in your hands, Father. Keep me out of the way so that your glory can shine brightly. Move in us today. Teach us today, Lord. And may today we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Do a great work in here today, Lord. This is in your hands. We love you. We are thankful, Father. We are grateful. We pray this all in the name of the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's open up your Bibles. We're in Acts 19. We're going to start in verse 1, and let's get started. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples. Okay, so let's stop there for a minute and set context. So this is actually the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Okay, so he has been traveling and he has found himself at the city of Ephesus. Now he's made a couple of stops along the way to encourage some of the believers and we see some of that in the previous chapter. But as of now, he's landed in Ephesus. And so as you'll see on the map, Ephesus is a port city and it's also the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And it's also strategically located on a lot of major trade routes. So as you can imagine, Ephesus is a significant uh, city of commerce. But the thing that Ephesus is probably most famous for is it's the home of the Temple of Artemis, and which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as a result, you've got people coming and going into Ephesus doing business. There's tourists. There's people doing religious pilgrimages to visit that temple. But one of the things that Ephesus was also known for is it became a center for magical practice. It seems the Ephesians were just obsessed with magic and the occult. In fact, it was so pervasive there that there's a term today that, that, that's called Ephesian letters. Ephesian letters refers to magical scrolls that have been discovered through archaeological digs or preserved in museums around the world. And a lot of that was centered in this area of Ephesus. So here we have in this city, this culture, Paul arrives... And it says that he found some disciples. Let's continue verse 2. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Okay, so I want to stop here and ask a question. Who are these disciples? Are these believers, these followers of Jesus Christ, or are these just truth seekers who don't quite know about Jesus yet? Because the context would seem to indicate that they're followers. And so we, we need to ask this question because Paul asks them a very interesting question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why does he ask them that? You see, apparently Paul has connected with these guys. This is early in his visit to Ephesus. Somehow he's gotten connected to these guys. And they appear to be Christians. And he's probably excited to meet them because he's like, okay, here's some people I can be doing ministry with. I'm going to need, these are going to be partners in ministry. And he's around these guys and he starts to notice something. Apparently something is not quite complete in their knowledge and in their faith. They look like Christians, they look like believers, but something causes him to ask this question. And it's a crucial question because Paul knew and Paul taught that people who've accepted Jesus Christ, who've put their faith in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read you Paul's own words in his letter to the Romans. Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So it's a very important question for him. And they answer that they've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that we can interpret that to mean We've, we've never even heard this idea of a Holy Spirit at all before. Because if they were Jews, they would know about the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament scriptures. And if they knew of John the Baptist, which apparently they did, they'd know that John, part of his message was when the Messiah comes, the promised one comes, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I think what they meant was, we're not aware that the Holy Spirit has come. So Paul continues to question them. He asks them into what then were you baptized? And they say, they, they say they were baptized into John's baptism. So now we're getting a, a clear picture of who these guys are. Because if you remember John, he's talking about John the Baptist. 
And John's ministry was one of preparation. John came to prepare the way for one who's going to come after him. And John's message was repent. Like if you went to see John preach down at the Jordan, that's what you're going to hear. What did John preach on today? Repent. That was his message. Repent. And so John was preaching. There's one coming after me. Get ready. The kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is coming. We need to repent. And this whole idea of repent is this idea of turning. Okay? It's turning from your sin and turning to face God. And he's saying, there's one coming, repent now. And people who heard that message and were convicted by that message and decided to repent would go ahead and get baptized as an outward sign of their, of their repentance. And so that's what we find is the case with these guys. They knew about John. They knew they'd been baptized in repentance. They knew there was a promised Messiah. Paul is getting ready to tell them that the promise has been fulfilled. Let's reread the end of verse 4. Well, let's just read verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who came after him. That is Jesus. That is the crucial, crucial piece of information that they were missing. That's what they needed. They knew they needed to repent. They knew a Messiah was coming. And now they've become aware that he's come. Now let's look at what they do. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So let's not miss what just happened here. Okay? These guys, on hearing this news from Paul, they placed their faith in Jesus as believers. They then decide to get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin to show that outwardly by prophesying and speaking in tongues. In that circumstance, that's how it was shown. You see, these guys look like Christians on the outside, but the inside was very different. They were probably very good people, but they found salvation in the name of Jesus. And that's our first point today, that there's salvation in the name of Jesus. So as Paul asked these men, I want to stop here and ask you, where are you at today in your faith? What is it that you believe? Because, you know, these men knew there was a God. They appeared to be Christians on the outside. They even knew they had a sin issue because they'd gone through this baptism of repentance. But they were lacking one very important thing, and that one important thing was Jesus. See, Paul proclaimed to them the fulfillment of what the Old Testament scriptures had been looking forward to. He proclaimed to them the fulfillment of what John the Baptist had taught. And when they placed their faith in Jesus, they were saved. So some of you are in here today, and you totally believe in God. You're, you're okay with this idea of a creator God that's put this whole thing in place. You might even describe yourself as a Christian if somebody asks you. Okay? But what I want to talk to you about today is the reality may be that your, your faith, that your religion, your, your, your beliefs, I'm wondering, do they, do they make a difference day in and day out? Are they relevant in your daily life? Is there something missing? Is everything looking good on the outside, but maybe something else is missing? Because what I want to share you to, to you, with you today is what Paul shared with these men, that Jesus has come as the promised Savior. You know, every one of us in here today has a sin issue. Every single one of us is in the same boat. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And no matter how hard we try, we can't overcome the separation we have between God. Our sin has put a separation between us and God. And we can try and try and try. We'll never be good enough. 
but God loved us so much, he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. See, God sent Jesus to go to a cross. He took our sin and placed it on him. He punished it at the cross to satisfy his justice. He took the righteousness of Christ and put it on us. And so now when God looks at us, he sees righteousness. Not because of anything we've done. That's all because of what God did, what Jesus did for us at the cross. That's why they call it grace. It's it's not earned. It's given freely by the Lord. And all you need to do is to turn to him, to use John's words to repent, just to turn and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Lord, I know I've got a sin issue. I know I can't overcome that. Lord, please just forgive me. That's all you need to do. There's no magic formula. There's no specific prayer. There's no class you have to take. You just call on him. Say, Lord, I need you. Forgive me. I'm going to put my faith in your son, Jesus, and God will respond to that. Is that what's missing in your life and in your faith? If it is, I'm going to declare to you, as, John, as Paul declared to these guys, Jesus is what's missing. Surrender to him. Don't wait. Call on him today. Call on him this morning. You don't need to wait. I'm telling you, Jesus has come to be your savior. He will transform your life. Just respond to him. So let's continue on in the text. Because we're going to see here how Paul is going to get used by the Lord here, as well as these 12 disciples, in beginning to spread the word throughout Asia. Okay, we're picking it up at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. He took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So now, here we have, so Paul's back in the synagogue at Ephesus. Now, I say back because if you remember last week, just briefly, Paul stopped off in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, and he stopped off in the synagogue, and the Jews even said, hey, we want to hear more from you, and he said, I'm sorry, I've got to get moving on, and if the Lord wills, I'll be back. He's back now, and this is the standard standard process that we see, right? This is what Paul does. He arrives in the city, He goes to the synagogue and he begins reasoning with the Jews. Remember, Paul is a Jew. Paul is a Pharisee. So he's there with him. They're opening up the scrolls. And he's like, let's let's look at the prophets. Let's look at what Moses said. See what they're saying about this suffering servant that's going to come? See what it says about the promised Messiah? Now let me tell you about Jesus. And let me show how he's the fulfillment of that. So he's reasoning with the Jews. And so some Jews believe. Some don't. A lot of them get really mad. They usually kick him out of the synagogue, oftentimes out of the city. And we see that same pattern happening here. Although here in Ephesus, he's been spent three months in the synagogue. That's a lot longer than when we saw in Thessalonica a few weeks ago. Three weeks is all he lasted there. So three months. So it's time for him to withdraw. And look what, look what it says in verse 9. It says, he with, in the second half of verse 9, it says, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, In that verse, that word disciples, I think in the context there, that's believers. Those are people who are believers. They are there to do ministry with Paul. And I believe it includes those 12 men we just heard about. Now, I can't prove that in the text. 
okay? But I think the way Luke has written this, he tells us about the 12. Shortly thereafter, he says the disciples went with him, and now they're reasoning in the hall. I think those were among the 12. Those 12 were among the ones that have gone with Paul. They're now doing ministry with Paul. They're now helping him do ministry. God's using them alongside Paul here. And it says, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So some manuscripts have suggested that Paul was reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And the reason that's important is because that time of day was the off time. So in that culture, your work day ended at 11 o'clock. So you got up early before the heat of the day, you're working, and then 11 o'clock comes, you're closing up shop, you're putting away your work, and you're going to go have a meal, and you're going to have a siesta. I like that. <laughs> that is good. We need to get back to that. But that was the pattern. And so from 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock, that's the downtime. Most people are asleep at that point. And so the hall was probably available. They were probably like, okay, Paul, you want to use it, you can. Nobody's using it at that time. So that's when Paul's there. Paul, remember, he's a tent maker. He has a craft. He's working in the mornings. I'm sure he's doing his craft in the morning. He's doing his tent making. 11 o'clock, closes shop, heads over to the hall of Tyrannus, begins to reason day after day for two years. And remember, Ephesus is this commercial center and this tourist destination. People are coming and going. And verse 10 is just great because it says, it continued for two years so that, I love those words, those are connecting words, so that. Okay, this reasoning for two years, what was the impact? All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Man, I love, what an amazing picture of patient discipleship for Paul. Day after day, in the heat of the day, he's there reasoning. And don't think this is some big crowd. This could be three people. Like, whoever's going to show, he's going to reason every single day. Paul doesn't, doesn't decide, I'm going to do this big conference. I mean, there's a theater in Ephesus that holds 20,000 people. Like, he could have said, hey, we're going to rent that for the weekend. We're having this big conference. I'm going to share the news, and you guys just Go. No, it's just this patient daily reasoning. Remember, people are coming and going from Ephesus. He's, he's, he's preaching to people. He's teaching people as they're coming and going. And these people are now spreading out. And the word of the Lord is beginning to spread throughout Asia through this, this patient, diligent reasoning and discipleship that Paul is doing. Ephesus is becoming a sending base for the word of the Lord. It's such a great picture of that. Now... That's where we're at, and now Luke, the author of this, is going to zoom in on a very specific incident. It's going to show us the power of the name of Jesus. And get ready for this, because this story you're not going to find in your Precious Moments Bible. Okay? Let's go to verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So don't miss what, let's stop there and don't miss what this says. I love the way Luke says this. He's very specific. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This isn't Paul. This is God. He's using Paul as an instrument in his hands here. Okay, this is God using him. But check this out. It's amazing. He's using handkerchiefs and aprons in this. Like, Wow. And so the word handkerchief literally translates as a sweat cloth. So picture a headband 
most likely. So Paul, in his morning work, as he's doing his tent making, is wearing this headband to keep the sweat out of his face. He's wearing an apron, which translates apron, around his waist. And he's probably getting done with his work day. He's setting these things aside. It's 11 o'clock. Got to go reason in the hall. I'm going to go teach in the hall. And this picture, people are coming, and they're carrying away these sweaty garments from Paul to people who are sick and people who are possessed. Okay, this isn't Paul selling these things or tossing them out like, you know, athletes after a, after a game, right? You ever seen the athletes coming off the field? Like, here, throwing off parts of their, their uniform. Like, yeah, I got a sweaty headband from Paul. They're like, wait, we know Paul's doing amazing. God's doing amazing things through Paul. This is, this is his headband. Let's just take this. Let's take it to the sick. And the word says the sick were, they, their diseases left them. And, and remember who's writing. This is, this is Luke. He's a physician. So he has authority to speak on the healing. All right? And it says evil spirits came out of them. So we have healing. We have exorcisms happening. Amazing. Now, those two verses set the context for what's getting ready to happen next. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So you have these, these, these itinerant Jewish exorcists that calls them. These are guys going around trying to exorcise evil spirits. And this makes sense in the context of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is a center of magical practice. Uh, one historian said Jewish magic was famous in antiquity. So these guys are going around, and they recognize what's happening with Paul. They're like, whoa, have you heard what's going on with Paul? And, and this, this Jesus sounds like this could be powerful. So these guys decide they're going to try and incorporate the name of Jesus into what they're already doing. Like, if we just use the name of Jesus into our existing incantations, that might be pretty powerful. What I would suggest is they're not doing it from a position of faith or belief in Jesus. And the reason I say that is the way they use the command. It says, I adjure you, in verse 13, I adjure you, I command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. All right, this is not from a posture of faith. This is a posture of, hey, I think this might be helpful for us if we use the name of Jesus the problem is they're getting to realize that they are mistaken. And so in verse 14, it zeroes in even further. There's these seven sons of Sceva who are trying to do this. Okay? And the demon responds to them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. So demons know who Jesus is. Like you read that all the time in the Gospels, right? When Jesus approaches a person who has a demon, demons know. They know his authority. There's no doubt. They've even heard of Paul. This just goes to show Paul effectiveness of Paul's ministry here. Paul's having an effect. Demons are like, I've heard of that dude. Okay, I know them. And then he looks at these guys and said, who are you? I'm thinking if you're that exorcist and that guy looks at you and says, who are you? That's an uh-oh moment. Like, oh, not good. Let's see what happens. Or verse 16 and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Wow. 
I don't remember this story from, from Sunday school. I, I, I don't think we had a flannel graph on that one. All right. So, but look what's happened here. These guys come in to perform an exorcism, and now a reverse exorcism has occurred. Like, the demon cast them out. And, and what's amazing is not only that it's seven on one, but they leave the place bloody and naked. They went in with clothes on, they came out without. It's not good. And it's kind of funny, but this would have been the ultimate form of humiliation. Like, these guys have just been exposed literally and figuratively, all right? They've gone in here trying to just use the name of Jesus and their little thing here. And this evil spirit knows, like, this isn't done from a matter of faith, all right? They're not believers. The demon knew it, and he exposed it. So we see in this story, as we read this, we can see the raw strength of spiritual forces. You know, spiritual warfare is real. And it needs to be taken seriously. I know sometimes we as church people can banter that phrase around sometimes. Oh, spiritual warfare. Think of spiritual warfare. We need to be careful and think about what we're saying. It's called warfare for a reason. And some of you in here today are in the middle of it, and you're like, yeah, it's warfare. It may be, for you, it may be this time of spiritual dryness that you're going through. You might even call it darkness that just keeps lasting, and you're just trying to survive this time with your faith intact, and you're wondering, Lord, where are you at in this? When are you going to bring me out of this? And it's warfare. It might be that you got news from the doctor recently that was unwelcome, unexpected, came on top of all kinds of other things going on in your life, and you're struggling to say, where are you at in this, Lord? What's going on here? It's warfare. It's heavy. But as we read in this text today, some of us in here this morning just need to be reminded that we who are followers of Jesus walk in victory because the spiritual warfare is real. It's raw and it's pressing in on you. But don't lose heart because while the battle is real, the ultimate victory is ours in Jesus. We do not need to fear the dark spiritual forces because there's power in the name of Jesus to have victory over those things. Now, where do I get that into text? Because you may say, Mark, that sounds great, but where is that? How does a demon overpowering seven guys show us that? And it goes back to verses 11 and 12, the context that was set there. He says that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. If we just read that by itself, you could come to the conclusion, wow, it doesn't take much to drive out an evil spirit. You know, sweaty cloth. But we get to see the next thing that happens. Luke includes here to say, look, spiritual forces are powerful. And a sweaty rag from Paul is causing evil spirits to flee. Like there is power in the name of Jesus. There is victory in the name of Jesus. And so that's the second point I want to make for us today. That there is victory in the name of Jesus. We have victory. Let's pick it up at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Wow. Do you think something like that is going to spread 
that's going to spread quickly. And I think the manner in which it occurred was so significant. It's not only seven on one, but it was a, it was a beating. They were, they were left naked. Like, word of this is going viral in that area. And the result is that the name of the Lord is extolled. So again, when you go back, you're in the city of Ephesus, this place of commerce and pagan worship and magical practice. And now the name of the Lord Jesus is being lifted high because of this event. So cool. Verse 18, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In verse 18, it calls these people believers. These are people who have heard the preaching of Paul. They've seen the miracles. They've heard of the Sons of Sceva event. They've become believers. And now they are compelled to come forward. They're divulging. They're confessing practices. You have people who are practicing magic. They're bringing their books, their magical incantation books. They're throwing them in a pile and they're burning them in public. This is a significant thing. And Luke even tells us the value of this. He says they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly what that is, but one scholar estimated that's probably in the millions of dollars of value. This was significant, but I would suggest that even more significant than the monetary value was the fact that this was the livelihood for these people. There, this, the, 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 the key to their practice and their trade was these books, these incantations, which they kept very secret. There, this, was what they, this was what made them, this is how they made money. By them, this is not some half-hearted effort to say, wow, I'm a believer now, I'm following. I probably need to curb some practices. I probably need to stop that a little bit. This is an all-in effort because they're not taking these books and putting them on the shelf and saying, no, I'm not going to touch those again, maybe. Not giving them to somebody else. They're burning them. There's no going back. They're done as magicians. They're done as exorcists. They're going all in. And I think that's the point here. They're going all in. And this is freedom for them. Because now they've destroyed things that were enslaving them and keeping them from going all in for Jesus. And this wasn't just some act of personal willpower. It's not like, oh, oh I feel like i got to do this. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to burn these. I'm gonna bring... Like, that's, that never lasts, right? Every time we think we can do this with willpower, it doesn't last. No, this is transformational. This is the power of the name of Jesus changing their lives. So if they take, I'm going to take my livelihood, I'm taking what I did that's no longer aligned with my faith, and I'm going to bring it out and I'm going to burn it. And that's our third point today, that there's freedom in the name of Jesus. So for Christians in the room, what are some practices and habits that you've been hanging on to that you need to divulge that you need to confess, that you need to bring into the light and destroy? What's still enslaving you and just keeping you from going all in? What are some things you're holding on to that just need to be brought out in the open and just burned? What little harmless sins might you be hanging on to that don't seem to be a big deal, not hurting anybody else? but they really need to be dealt with because there's danger in hanging on to these things. 
please realize the danger in this. It's like, it's like having a baby tiger in your home as a pet. Like, it's, it's cute and it's playful, but if you keep that thing around and you start feeding it, it's going to grow up. It eventually becomes an adult tiger. Eventually, it's going to eat you. That's how serious this is. What do you need to bring forth? What do you need to expose? Because confession and divulging leads to freedom. Again, it's not willpower. I need to do this. It leads to freedom, and there's freedom in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is more powerful than the sin that you're dealing with. So as we close today, I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, if that's what's missing in your faith, I want to declare to you, he has come. He is your Savior, and he is ready to respond to you. Please do that today. Call out to the Lord. Ask Jesus to forgive you. He will transform your life. There's salvation in the name of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're a believer and you're experiencing the reality of spiritual warfare, I just want to encourage you to take heart because while the warfare is real, there's ultimately victory in the name of Jesus. And if you're a believer and there's a practice or habit that's holding you back from going all in for the Lord, pray to the Lord that he would help you to divulge that, confess that, and give you the strength and the courage to destroy it. Because there's freedom in the name of Jesus, and it's the freedom that you so desperately long for. My friends, there's salvation, there's victory, there's freedom in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. Lord, the, there's power in the name of Jesus. And Lord, today as we, as we hear in your word, we see this power on display. And Lord, I pray again as I did the being that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, do a work in our hearts so that we don't just walk away and say, oh, that was really interesting. But we walk away and just help us to search our hearts. If there's something that needs to be brought in the open, Lord, give us the courage to do it because you want us to have freedom. And if we're just in the midst of this time of warfare, Lord, strengthen us for that. May we remember every day in the midst of the battle that the victory is Jesus. The victory will be ours as we walk with Jesus. Lord, we thank you, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And it's his precious name that we pray this today. Amen.